I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Today's guest is my very good friend, Dan Moray. Dan is the co-founder of the brain health and mental wellness company, Heights. He is the host of the UK's number one business podcast, Secret Leaders. Dan's last business, Grabble, became the UK's number one shopping app. For that, he won the UK's Young Entrepreneur of the Year award, but sadly, this business eventually did not work out. When I met Dan for the first time, he told me the story of how he took so many lessons from that venture and put it into his new venture, which he started after curing his chronic insomnia and anxiety through nutrition. Dan, it's wonderful to see you again. Last time we sat together, if you remember, on the dinners of the founders, effort that you do, which I'd love to talk about a little bit today, you came across as the most lighthearted entrepreneur I have ever come across. For those who are listening, Dan sat next to me. He was introducing himself failure after failure, even including some of the things that really became successful and how they dismantled and so on and so forth, which I thought was incredibly inspiring. Honestly, it is exactly what entrepreneurship is all about. I started more than 25 businesses myself. Many of them failed and I loved them fondly and I learned from them and I moved on with my life. So I want to start at that space and I want to talk about, first of all, where did you get the bug? Why are you so entrepreneurial in everything that you do? And how did your failures play in and how did you manage to learn from them? Yeah, so firstly, thank you for having me. And obviously, I really enjoyed sitting next to you and then learning about, I guess, you know, everyone has such different stories. And I think that's the thing that I really love. And ultimately, the only way that you really move forward in life and develop is if you're able to take stock of what didn't go quite so well before. Which is frequent. Yeah, exactly. And I have a big personal philosophy of not taking everything so seriously. You know, it's important, of course, to make sure that your life isn't one big joke. But if you take everything so incredibly seriously, including the times you fail, then you probably end up too scared to start again. This is the kind of energy that I think is really important in my personal philosophy is to make sure that when you do fail, you are really honest and you, you seek out the truth. So seeking out why you think you failed, your personal failings and the contributing factors around it. You try and gather as much honest information as you can and then deeply inquire to yourself how you're going to change those things next time. But, you know, not necessarily doing it in such a format as sitting around like a grumpy philosopher, wishing you weren't such a useless piece of all the time you know that doesn't really help you feel like you want to start again it's just the opportunity to start again should be quite fun it just helps you feel like a useless piece of 
all the time. That's exactly really exactly yes. Yeah. Spot on. So where did I get the bug from entrepreneurship? So interestingly, my dad was a business owner. He wasn't an entrepreneur because they don't use wanky terms like that back in the day. But he was a fashion manufacturer. He did that all the way from sixteen until the age of sixty-seven when he passed away. It's interesting. Like he wanted me to go work in the family business, and I was always super against it. And I was definitely not going to do anything like that. And also. He had really, like he had multiple heart attacks and his business failed, like all these things all was on the line anyway. And so as, when you grow up in that environment and you see the kind of uh, health toll that entrepreneurship can cause you, it doesn't really make you want to start, to be honest. So I actually left university and went into advertising. And uh, I thought that was a perfect career for me because I'm quite creative. But the problem is, I always tended to outthink my bosses and that's quite difficult. So, and I don't mean outthink them like I'm smarter than them, but having bigger, more creative ideas and being limited by their vision of what we could do within the constructs of the company that they'd set. It didn't take long for me just to become so overly frustrated by that, that I just needed to do it myself. So interestingly, one of the directors of my first company ended up asking me to leave and join him and start a new company that was a competitor to the one that he'd employed me in which is extremely unusual. And I was 24 at the time. So I was a little bit inexperienced to say the least, but I've always been a very hard worker and I'm very passionate. And so I did start that quite well. But one thing that I would say I've learned quickly is what a good relationship and a good partnership looks like. So I don't think I'm smart enough. I'm not well-rounded enough, let's say, to be a sole founder. I know that you've done plenty of that yourself. Never a sole founder as well. Oh, you're never a sole founder. Never ever. Ah, uh, okay, right, okay. I'm totally not rounded enough. Thank God, God, I thought you were such a and like, you know, just uh, no, no, so I, unbelievable. Thank you, really. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> thank you for saying that in public. Okay, all right. Guys, for the rest of the podcast, don't believe anything that Dan is going to say, okay? <laughs> I, just, well, I can't believe he's managed to do all of this uh, on his own as well. But this is the thing, right? I think it's so helpful for people to know what they can and can't do on their own. And, you know, one of my favorite stories of leadership is an old football one, which is Alex Ferguson discovering Ryan Giggs and Alex Ferguson best sports manager ever, generally speaking. And he was very rigid and always had a philosophy of developing everyone. So everyone had to do defense and offense. Everyone had to do defense and offense. It was non-negotiable. And then he found Ryan Giggs. Um, he just basically gave up quite quickly on him and realized that this guy could potentially be the best winger in the entire world if he didn't make him defend. And so developed a new philosophy, which was essentially like focusing on your strengths entirely. And um, I really love that. A, I love the story of the ability for someone who was already as prestigious as Alex Ferguson to change. And by the way, he teaches that course in Harvard Business School, which I think is also really interesting and on leadership. But beyond that, I think there are things I'm really naturally useless at that I could definitely become a bit better at, but it's not as good as harnessing my most creative and my most meaningful assets and finding a partner who can do all the other stuff that I don't get out of bed looking to do. Yeah, absolutely. And enjoy it tremendously and be very good at it and really, really never want to do the stuff that you do because they think it's annoying. Exactly right. And this is the thing. And ultimately, entrepreneurship, like everyone says, you know, it is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so for that, you need energy. And for constant energy, you need some level of fulfillment. Yes, you need some level of purpose. Yes. But you also just got to like what your role is. You got to like what you do. So you and I definitely have a very different brain because you have an engineer's brain. So, you know, you have a very logical way of thinking, I would assume. 
you don't want one of those men. <laughs> no, I, and I'm sure. But like, obviously, the flip side of that is, you know, I'm always in the clouds, like over here. And, you know, when it gets down to the execution part, like poor people around me that have to figure out how to do it. But you always need a little bit of both is the point. Absolutely agree. Yeah. And um, I definitely skew on that side. Like I'm very big on brand, on creativity, on comms, on emotions. So how do people feel and receive information and, and why? And what is it that's going to trigger those emotions? And so that's the psychological stuff that I find deeply curious and so fascinating and really gives me energy to get up every day and, and try. So this first partnership that I had, I had a business partner who I really, really loved. In fact, it's my birthday. As you know, he just messaged me happy birthday. Uh, so we're still really good friends. But he basically decided that he was going to go scuba diving in Mexico a lot. And because I was young, <laughs> you're going to do the whole thing. <laughs> right. And I had the good foresight and self-respect to just say, no, that's not okay. Like, that's not how this relationship's going to go. I don't care that I'm young. And, I, and and there was this philosophy that, because he was my boss previously, that that was kind of the way that this was starting. And I was like, no, it doesn't feel healthy to me. And so I called quits on it super fast. But the reality is, like, by that point, I've got the entrepreneurial bug. So I actually ended up starting a business with my best friend from school, Joel. Um, he is the exact opposite from me in terms of skill set, strategy, management consultancy, ACA accountancy, like you name it. Like basically the way we describe ourselves sometimes is he is spreadsheets, I'm PowerPoint. As in, <laughs> okay. I will, and I will be useless one or the other, right? But as in I will make something look great. I will make you feel like you're part of the journey during it. And then he'll show me a spreadsheet and I'll be like, where am I looking? <laughs> I don't even know where to start on this. So it's kind of perfect. It's worked well. So we started a business together called Grabble. Um, as you know, the journey... Was very successful. Yeah, so the journey with that was really exciting and really interesting. And we basically became the number one shopping app in the UK. You know, it started, we didn't know how, we didn't know anything about development. We didn't know developers. We didn't even know what Jira was or how to speak to them or like a single thing. But you learn, right? You learn these things bit by bit. We ended up building this mobile company that had... 1.4 million monthly active shoppers through the app. We were overtaking ASOS, well, we did overtake ASOS and Zalando and all the big players in the UK. And the reason we did that was for our focus on mobile. So we were nicknamed the Tinder of shopping, basically. Good place to be. Yeah, a great place to be. Very snappy title. We were on the front page of the Daily Mail, which is, they came up with that title. So once the Daily Mail says it, that's game over. That's what everyone's going to call you. It was a really exciting ride. Basically, our problem was we grew too fast. So so we didn't solve a lot of the problems that were obvious in the business. The reality is we had problems at 100,000 members shopping that were really obvious that if we'd have solved, we'd have survived. But instead, we focused on growth. And the reality is by the time we got to a million, we were completely screwed. We basically, the company ended up imploding is the honest answer. And by that, I mean, it was costing us more money than we were making to serve our customers, which is not a good place to be. It's fine if you're Amazon in the early days, but like ultimately it's not a great place to be as an entrepreneur. And there are little things that you can do to foresee these things. We take full responsibility because we listen to investors and we listen to other people telling us that we were doing the right thing by growing fast. And it wasn't the right thing on reflection, right? And it's easy to reflect on these things and say whether they are or aren't. But the reality of it is we ended up completely screwed with that business, having what I describe on reflection as a great brand and a really great product and a completely useless business. 
And, you know, people always joke and say, oh, you don't need to go to get an MBA, right? Just do a startup. It's so much, so much better. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, but sometimes I joke back to them being like, well, if I'd done an MBA, they would have talked to me about margin and I would have actually probably... <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have listened, trust me. <laughs> You're probably right. Yeah. So, you know, it's really interesting lessons learned. It was a really, it was a public failure as well, right? So it was embarrassing. We won lots of awards. We won best mobile company in Europe and for, by TechCrunch. The worst was... There was a Wired retail event and they had Facebook and then us and then Google. They were the headline morning uh, speakers. So I had to go and speak in between Google and Facebook on the future of shopping. That was on a Tuesday. And then the Wednesday was this award ceremony for TechCrunch for like their best of everything. And we were like the mobile category. And... At that time, we were losing money hand over fist and there was no clear way out. And it was obvious that we were going to fail from any which way I could possibly think about it. And um, I still had to go up and pitch in between those two behemoths and pretend like everything was fine. And at the end of it, I was so depleted, as was my business partner, Joel. We were both just so depressed, to be honest, just knowing the reality. And this is the very sick and twisted reality of what happens sometimes of what you see at the face of things in the audience is so different to what's going on in the business. Because when Wired asks you to do a speech at their big event, um, that's like six months before. And in a startup, you've only ever got 12 to 18 months of cash. So you're only one decision away from completely up the business or skyrocketing it in that period. And in our case, we'd it up and so we were in a position where by the time we're doing this talk we feel like the business is completely screwed but still having to go and share the vision talk about things like everything's amazing and the next night for this award ceremony neither of us turned up wow we were so just depleted and exhausted and upset with things we didn't turn up to the awards and we won and a friend of ours had to go up and pick it up and like do the speech for us and all this stuff and we're like oh my god and it's really interesting psychological reality that I think is worth people thinking about, which is, A, awards are Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that then. I was living for the awards, and now I just literally don't care. Now I really, really care about basically customer reviews. It's all I care about. It's the only thing that matters. Okay. If your customer reviews are great, okay. you're going to have a good business, as long as you've got a margin and you're sensible. So... That's the only thing that we care about now. The reality is I didn't know that then. So I thought it was important. And it was a real like it was a real head being in that kind of scenario, being publicly in papers and stuff about how great your company's doing, but actually knowing it's not going well at all. So super embarrassing. How do you pull yourself out of something like this? This is a good question. And I think the honest answer to you is two things really. One is like a good level of humility, right? So I think at the time, you have lots of people coming to you for advice, right? As in, lots of people want to be an entrepreneur and they want to ask you how, how you guru. do. Yeah. yeah, exactly. For a while, you want to be really helpful to people and try and give them answers. When, of course, the best answer you can give them is, I don't know, but here are some things I'm trying. But at the time, it was just, I would say, too inexperienced to understand that the real answer was, I don't know. So I was trying to give people like mm. practical answers when, God forbid, anyone actually listened to me because I might have ended up in the same spot. But... One of the most important things in terms of picking yourself up out of this is actually to spend the time really thinking about what it is you want to do with your life and what are the important skills you have that you can contribute to the world that are going to make the most impact. And actually, I got introduced to this concept, which I'm sure you're familiar with, called ikigai, a Japanese term. And... Basically, Ikigai is like the ultimate Venn diagram, right? So it's something along the lines of what you're good at, what 
makes money, what adds value to other people, what helps the planet, what makes profit, like it's all these things, right? Like all the skills and in that middle, that's Ikigai. And I once saw this diagram and I was like, oh my God, I don't have that. <laughs> yeah. I don't care about shopping. This was a really, really interesting insight for That's me. It's eye-opening, isn't it? You're spending your life doing it, but I really don't care about well, it. Well, this was it. And I saw this diagram and it's so crazy because like literally a diagram stopped me in my tracks and made me think that the fact that my business was failing actually didn't matter because what a blessing because I don't want to do it. And, oh, wow. And you know, the really hard thing as an entrepreneur, and you'll definitely appreciate this, is feeling trapped. So... People who are employed at companies, and there's, I think there's a really interesting dichotomy as well between what security is. And I think people get it wrong, but that's just my opinion. So a lot of people say that being an employee gives you that security, right? It gives you the comfort. But, you know, look at where we are right now in a pandemic, and that doesn't necessarily give you security. And equally, being an entrepreneur, like the best bet you can make is on yourself. And the best bet that you can obviously also hope to make is that you are learning from your mistakes and you're developing fast enough because you probably won't get it right the first time or the second time. So in that sense, there is a lot to be said about the secure life of an employee. But at the same time, if the entrepreneur messes everything up and the whole company fails, you know, I had to fire over 50 people, right? That's not security one way or another, however you look at it. So I think there was this sort of interesting retrospective look that I gave myself, which is, what are the many reasons that the company has failed? And whichever way I diced this, you know, whether I was making the wrong decisions, the right decisions, etc., it all came back to, I don't think that I care enough. And I don't think I cared enough about the problem to want to fix it enough to really, really give this my all and figure it out. Because look, at the end of the day, profit margins and business models and all these things, you can kind of fix these things, right? You just have to want to. And it's like, things are really hard to solve. People are sending rockets to the end of the universe. Frankly, anything is solvable. You just have to have the deep inquiry and passion and motivation and sometimes break down every single wall in front of you to do it. Then the reality is, if I was looking at this diagram of Vicky guy, would I do that for Grabble? No, no, I wouldn't. So I do think that there was this period of it was virtually impossible to save, but nothing is really truly impossible. And I wasn't willing to go that extra mile. This gave me this huge sense of, of freedom to say, I need to spend some time learning what I love and what I find really interesting. And um, I think that's a nice segue into a personal experience that I had previous to this. So previous to this failing, which is when things were going well, is I got insomnia. And the most fascinating experience I find in my personal life for this is this desire to want to solve a problem. So and it's a very typical man thing. So they say, right, in gender politics, but they say, you know, men are always looking to solve every bloody thing with an answer, whereas sometimes the, the true answer is just to listen and stop trying to fix things. In the sense of mental health, like everyone, right? I've had mental health problems caused by sad moments. So when my father passed away, I was depressed. I'm human. That's pretty, pretty normal. Uh, when I had a psychotic boss, a different one from the one earlier, um, I had great anxiety. But then there was a period when I just got insomnia out of nowhere. And I was perfectly happy at this period. I was getting married. I have a roof over my head. I practice gratitude daily. Like I'm very glass half full guy always. So insomnia was a mental health problem that I was suddenly completely flummoxed by. And it happened for five and a half months. And um, the 
uh, symptoms where I'd go to sleep at midnight and I'd wake up at 2 a.m. Every single night, wide awake, 2 a.m. And that was it. I had to get up and just start work because there was no going back to sleep. Wow. And so it was really chronic. And I tried all the different things you would if you have a mental health problem. So curing things for your mind. So I tried meditation, of course. I tried talking to people. I tried therapy. I tried cutting out alcohol. I tried having more alcohol. <laughs> that did not work? No, that I know. I know, yeah, it did. It, well, it would send you to sleep. Gets you from 12 to 2.45 or something. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then you woke up with a hangover. So sadly, still woke up. But, you know, I tried all the different things. I went to the doctor. They gave me sleeping pills. I didn't even bother taking them because I'm like, it's not going to help, right? It's going to let me go to sleep tonight, but not like going to cure the thing. Um, in the end, very fortunate, like during my time, at Grabble and like before Grabble I'd, I'd actually sold a business and so I skip over the success because it's boring but I did some angel investing and this lady that I was an investor in I went for dinner with her just to see how she is and she was very very kind and told me you know have I ever thought of brain nutrition and I was like no I don't even know what you're talking about she recommended this book called Optimum Nutrition for the Mind by a guy called Patrick Holford never heard of him never heard of it and I read it and I was like, this is really interesting. But the reality is I'm quite a scientific person and I, I'd still heard like, you know, nutritionists, they don't really study, do they? By the way, that's not true. That's humble of you. <laughs> yeah. But the point is that's not true. But this was my kind of like high level, completely smug, uninformed point of view. So I was like, I'm going to go to a dietitian because dietitians are NHS trained. So they sound more scientific. And she basically said the same things as the book did and the nutritionist did. So I was like, okay, fair enough. This is two good sources. And the reality for my insomnia was I was told DHA omega-3, blueberry extract and B vitamin complex were the three things that I should take and try and see if I sleep. And they worked. Within two weeks, I was sleeping through the night and my anxiety went away. And just to give you some example of why those three brains are 60% fat. 90% of the fat is a compound called DHA. So it is the number one building block of our brains. It's a scientific fact. It's not an opinion. It's just not widely considered. So super interesting to me because I was like, huh, this was like the kind of thing they should teach you in school, let alone when I'm 30. Seems really odd. So there was that. Then there was blueberry extract was because it's an antioxidant, which basically cleans out your glymphatic system of your brain when you sleep. And I was like, okay, I mean, it doesn't mean anything to me, but it sounds cool. I'll do that. Um, B vitamin complex was just because it's energy, right? So your brain and body get energy from B vitamins. It comes from nature. All these things come from nature. But I was told to supplement them because I obviously wasn't getting enough. And long story short, they worked. And I started researching all this stuff and I just couldn't believe how much scientific evidence there is for natural nutrients impacting our brain's health and indeed our mental health. I got this entrepreneurial spark and bug because the one thing that I really love is communicating and building brands and building a vision and a picture for trying to communicate something simple to people. It's a very unusual entrepreneurial space, like supplements in general, because the first experience I had was I went into Holland and Barrett on the high street and I bought the first DHA Amiga supplements that I could find. And I sent a picture of them to my dietitian and she told me that I had to buy other ones. And I was like, why? And that's because they were seven C's. It's the number one brand in the whole world selling omega-3 supplements and um, the daily dose on there is 45 milligrams and the efficable dose according to science is 250 so what i learned was a i'd have to take something like seven c's for six days in a row just to get one day's worth of what science says you need for your brain's health and b all supplements do this so they all legally are required to 
say what the minimum amount is according to science on them, but there's this weird discrepancy where they're allowed to put a minimum amount in and make a claim. And so you have to read the small print. And I was like, that is the most ridiculous thing. I can't believe that that is the case. And so the entrepreneurial bug starts going on the gap. I fix this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And on the many things that you can fix. And ultimately, just to wrap up, I guess the thesis behind this is I actually believe that I can go into any room in the world, whether it's Dubai or London or Rio de Janeiro, doesn't matter. And I can ask them, what do you think all of the things we can do to help someone with a mental health problem? I think most people would list exactly the same things and very, very few people would say nutrition at the moment. Absolutely. At the moment. Absolutely. Now, in yeah. 10 years, everyone is going to say nutrition as one of them. A good example behind this ridiculous comment is that 10 years ago, that was true with nutrition and our physical health. Correct. Just 10 years yeah. ago. And supplements are supplements. So let's be clear, like you should always get things in your whole food diet, but it's not as if like the protein powder industry hasn't been an amazing spark to make people same as Lululemon and leggings and stuff, right? It's just creating this vibe around wellness and taking personal responsibility over your health and lifestyle through nutrition and seeing the impact that has on your physical health quite rapidly. It is not a far-flung concept at all to suggest that exactly the same is true with your mental health. And more to the point, science says that is completely true. So it's like this enormous gap that just doesn't seem to be something that people are focusing on, which to me is completely bonkers. That is ikigai moment where I've sort of had a personal experience, realized where I can have an impact, make a real difference to hopefully society and the way that people feel about mental health. And that was a real starting point behind the sort of spark that started Heights and really something that excites me. I tried Heights and I have to say when I tried it, you gave me this wonderful gift. The idea for me was, I don't need that stuff. My brain is fully functional. I never really heard of the idea of our brains needing separate nutrition from the rest of our bodies. But yet again, I mean, I was a vegetarian and a vegan for most of my life and never really looked at the actual amount of protein I needed in my body to keep my body growing, right? And it's funny that those things are never really discussed because once you are aware, even if you want to be vegan, once you're aware of how much protein you need, you start to get that into your body in one form or another. Now, there is a lot of mental health issues happening around the world today. There is a lot of insomnia, there is a lot of anxiety and so on and so forth. And you're saying, if any of our listeners is suffering from this, one of the things they definitely need to consider is nutrition. Is that not prescribed by shrinks or the doctors that they go to? No, I mean, it's interesting you say shrinks. I, as you know, I'm doing this series at the moment for Heights live interviews, which you're joining me on called Working In. And we do have a couple of psychiatrists coming and they do talk about nutrition, interestingly. But they never recommend a supplement. And it's really interesting, right? So this is the very interestingly murky world of this. They all feel very uncomfortable recommending a supplement because the safest thing to do is say, get it in your diet. Now, let me tell you, and by the way, same as you, one of the key insights and in why I was so deficient was because I was plant-based. The DHA omega-3 comes most commonly from fish, but fish get it from algae. So you can get it from algae, but let's be honest, unless you're eating seaweed every single day, you're not getting your daily dose. It's very common to create deficit literally in your brain because it's not getting the nutrients, the number one building block that is required for your brain's health. Supplements for people that have a completely normal diet 
are indeed supplements, right? As in you can get everything in your whole food diet in theory. But for vegetarians and vegans, and I say it as one, it's irresponsible just to say you can get everything in your diet. It's far more responsible to say you've made a great choice morally. You've made a great choice for the environment. There will be some deficiencies. Supplement them. That is not a dangerous message in any kind of way. In fact, it is the exact opposite. It's a completely responsible message, according to science. The thing that I find very odd about doctors is they'll always recommend something that a pharmaceutical company says that people should take yeah. because it has a patent and because they're on the take. And I'm sorry for being like incredibly rude. It's not their fault. This is literally how the system is set up. Yeah, truly. Supplements, incidentally. So this is Heights right here. Every single thing in Heights you can get from nature. What makes that really interesting is you can't patent anything that comes from nature. So no pharmaceutical company is going to be interested in making a product like this because it isn't patentable, which means that it's hard to build a moat and value for shareholders around, which is why you have to build brand and comms around it like really heavily. Now, for doctors, there's so much risk involved for some reason. At the moment, it would be completely different within 10 years. But at the moment, about recommending a supplement that's whole food and natural, I don't know why. So they always just say, have a better diet. Again, slightly irresponsible message because most people know about have a better diet. If everyone in the world just took the message of have a better diet, then obesity wouldn't be one of the biggest killers in the world. So we know the things that are good for us. It doesn't mean that we technically do. And for most people who are busy, like you and me, convenience is an enormous factor. As in, cooking food takes a long time. Sourcing good ingredients takes a long time. It doesn't fit into everyone's working life. So this kind of concept of have the perfect brain nutrition in a whole food diet, that is a luxury to a lot of people. And having convenience is a really good opportunity to make sure that you're not missing out. I always say to people, my opinion is it's a bit useless telling people what not to do. It's useless to say, don't eat chocolate, don't do this, don't do that. People don't listen. Look at the whole world. How have we not learned that yet? But it's much more constructive to say, do that, but also do this. So if you're going to eat chocolate and, you know, have all the other things as well, hello, definitely have nutrition that's good for you as well. That is very, very, very simple message. It does contribute to your sense of well-being and health if you're also definitely getting the nutrients you might be lacking from somewhere else. And it's a lot easier to add something than it is to take it away. So I want to take this to pivot to another thing that I admire about you. So you have that business that you're... Is it the beard? <laughs> yeah, mine is much more handsome. A little bit of salt and pepper helps. You have this business and you run it as a business and you're very, very clever as an entrepreneur. You were just telling me you started this entire company remotely under COVID-19 yep. with employees being onboarded online and so on. But on the other hand, you seem to also follow that same supplement approach to things that you're passionate about that don't make money at all. So you have the number one business podcast in the UK. You have this founders organization that I spoke at, which was really, really an incredible initiative that brings entrepreneurs from across the UK together. And you don't make any money at all on those. Yeah. How does that work? I mean, those things take effort and time. And, you know, why would you do that? And they're actually probably good profit makers if you wanted to make them profit makers. Yeah, for sure. I think it's a great question. And I don't necessarily think it's correct. But let's start with founders. So founders, I have a real personal issue with 
pointless bravado. What I can't be bothered with is going to events and everyone saying, how are you? And you're saying, yeah, it's great. I'm great. And everyone going, how's the business going? Oh, the business is going great. Yeah, yeah, we're killing it. We're killing it. So <laughs> it's boring. And it's just and like you can't possibly go to a conference and everyone tell you the same thing and it'd be true it's ridiculous so i started founders with my friend rob and our, our entire thesis behind it was literally let's create a space where it's totally okay to come and admit things aren't going well and absolutely the moment you tell people that things aren't going well and you make it comfortable for people you can ask for help and as soon as people have some empathy and they care enough and there's enough instinct within their humanity to want to see if they can help you, you will probably solve a problem that you wouldn't have been able to solve if you went around with your bravado and just told everyone things were going well. So this was the starting thesis of founders was, you know, can we basically create a pay it forward community where vulnerability is absolutely at the center of it? And the more vulnerable you are, the more people will empathize and the more they'll go out of their way to help each other. And that will create a virtuous circle. Now, there is no reason to monetize that whatsoever because there's nothing in what I just said. I mean, a lot of founders will pay a few hundred pounds a month or a year to just find that community. Yeah, and I do agree that they would. As I said earlier, it's my birthday and I, my wife was like, well, what are you actually serious? What are you doing? I spent three hours this morning on a founder strategy call. And that's how I spent my birthday. Celebration. <laughs> exactly. And the reason actually is... I think it's really difficult. Basically, when people pay for something, there is a transactional element like you need to deliver. And you sort of need to deliver to their expectation, I suppose, of what a service or product should look like and be. And you kind of feel beholden. And I think we have such a strong and specific point of view of the value set. Like the number one most important thing to us in founders is, is someone living and dying by the values that we set. Because that's the only thing that's gonna create this virtuous circle. Um, it's very easy for people to buy their way into any club they want to in the world, but there's nothing more annoying than someone who can afford everything being told they're not welcome somewhere because they can't buy their way in. <laughs> yes. And it creates a really interesting barrier. Like money is too easy a barrier to get past if you're wealthy. And being wealthy is no sign whatsoever that you are a, a humble and good person willing to help others. So that's like the main thesis behind that. I love that. So you buy your freedom to stand by your dreams and values by saying, I'm going to give this away for free. Totally. Yeah. Tell me a bit about your podcast, on the other hand. I'm new to podcasting here, and I'm really doing my best to create variety and so on and so forth. You started a podcast with the intention of, I'm only going to podcast 10, 15 times a year, that was it? 15 times a year, so 15 episodes a year. Where did that come from? It's like, uh, well, I don't care if they like it really. It's, I don't have to be pressured. You're right. It sounds a bit more strategic than it really was. The truth is, we started 15 because it was easy and low-hanging fruit. So there's 15 guests that I identified that I really wanted to interview. We set that up and we we're like, we'll just see how it goes. And at the end of series one, if people listened and it feels like it was worth it, because we didn't put any money into it, we literally spent 200 pounds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if it looks like it's good, then maybe we'll do another series. And the reality is at the end of that series, we'd had 25,000 downloads. And you don't really know what good looks like, but both of us were like, that sounds pretty good. For organic, that sounds great. Like, let's do it again. Now, the difference, I think, behind like our thesis, our positioning for secret leaders was we want to interview business leaders that you don't necessarily hear on everyone else's podcast. They run companies that are recognizable that you've heard and seen before, but it's pretty hard to get an interview with them because they don't usually do that. So 
we had this thesis that if you want to do that, there's not endless amounts of people in the world that want to do that, right? And so you are automatically limited by your own guest list. There's not that many massive businesses in the world or really successful businesses in the world with leaders we don't really know that much about. And so I think that's like an interesting thesis on its own. And this kind of scarcity breeds demand always, right? As in that's the luxury concept as well. And so we just, by, I guess, complete luck landed on this sensible strategy. And the truth of the matter is by the time we did series four, which came out last September, we just skyrocketed. We went, I've got all these screenshots. It's embarrassing. But I've got all these screenshots on my Instagram being like, holy we're in the top 10 business podcasts in Europe. And then like literally two days later, it's like, oh my God, we're number five. I can't believe it. Oh, well, that's as good as it's going to get. And the next day it's like, oh my God, we beat Guy Raz. We're at number four. And <laughs> this happened every single day until we got to number two. And I was like, right, we're never beating Tim Ferriss. So we can just give up on this, but so chuffed for at number two. And the next day we were over Tim Ferriss and I'm like, I'm really sorry. Oh yeah. man. And I literally my, my Instagram, like if you scroll down far enough, you can just see like my things are just more apologetic every day, which is, I know this is really egotistical. I'm sorry it's working. Yeah. I'm sorry I know it's, it's ridiculous. I know I said that this won't happen yesterday, but it's happened today. But by the time you beat Tim Ferriss, you're like, that is outrageous. Oh man. And I think it's because we had really fantastic guests and they started to come inbound as well, which is great. They were listening to the show. So we had the founders of Slack, the founders of Deliveroo, or founder, I should say, of Deliveroo. Really interesting businesses that are like coming in and wanting to tell their story. And like the Slack one, for example, they wanted to come tell the story on the podcast the week of their IPO. And they IPO'd at $18 billion. You know, it's like an amazing story to sort of get a, an exclusive on, like crazy. So we've been really, really lucky with that. I think podcasting, as you'll learn, is definitely a journey on, uh, you know, I haven't been a guest on many people's podcasts. You're doing a really great job because you've already learned clearly to ask questions and let the answers flow. And then you do the editing afterwards and it's really interesting. My first series, I kept interrupting guests. It's terrible. <laughs> Did you? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm just very curious. I'm really very curious. And what can I tell you then? I mean, I totally wanted to share you with my audience because I think that mix of, I don't know if you will agree with what I'm saying, incredibly values driven, playful, don't give a damn, really. It's like, I want to do what I love and I want to do it with full passion and I will dedicate myself to it all the time and I will want to feel that it makes a difference. That's the recipe. In my view, this is honestly, I mean, I'm not a business podcast. I present all walks of life to my audience to say that in every walk of life, the answer is, if you want to find success and happiness, is to find yourself, find what you're all about and put your heart in it without worry and fear. And if you do that with a little bit of value, so not everything is about money, not everything is about just getting some ego and position and so on, somehow life works. It works really well. And I think that's truly my summary of why I wanted to share you with everyone. And I think it was wonderful the way you said it. That's a very, very kind and poetic summary. It really is true. And you know, we're good friends by now, but every time we meet, that's what I feel. It's like life is not worth that complexity that we put into it. It's just a mix of a few very good ingredients in a good balance. Just like your brain nutrition, you put them together right and they work. So I'll leave you all, hopefully as inspired as I am, do visit Dan's podcast, Secret Leaders. Do try Heights. I'm not advertising the product, I swear. I just tried it and I really, really enjoyed it. And it made a difference to me. 
care about your brain nutrition. That's a very important topic. Where else could they find you, Dan? So you can find me at Dan Murray Serta on everything. And for Heights, you can find us at yourheights.com or at yourheights on Instagram and Twitter. You're the best, man. Good to see you. Thanks for coming. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for having me. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for Mo Gaudet, Slow Mo, Soul for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.